Welcome to the Evolver Network podcast. I'm your host, Magenta, sharing news from the forefront of regenerative culture. Today, we're joined by creators and participants in the forthcoming documentary, From Shock to Awe, Healing PTSD with Ayahuasca, MDMA, and Cannabis. This film will chronicle the journeys of military veterans as they seek relief from PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It will be an intimate look at how these substances can be used to heal our wounded warriors and, by extension, their loved ones. Something you may not know is that 22 veterans commit suicide every day in the United States. Treatment for PTSD often involves a lot of pharmaceutical drugs, ineffective results, and continued suffering. Several substances that are currently Schedule One drugs in the U.S., which means that they're illegal, offer more effective solutions for veterans. And this film documents what is being explored in that landscape. The filmmakers are currently fundraising to produce the film, and you can help by visiting their Indiegogo page from Shock to Awe. We're very grateful and honored today to be joined by the filmmakers and participants in this film. Welcome. If you could each please share your name and what your role is in producing this film. Well, I'll start. This is Janine Sagert. I am actually the content producer of the film, which means I am responsible for making sure it's all in order and that the people are on board. Um, the actual director is a man named Luke Cote, who has already made a movie about PTSD amongst Canadian veterans called Crash Landing. And our two guests are not involved with the film production, but are experts in their field. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Great. Thank you, Janine. Um, this is Saj Razvi. Uh, and as Janine said, I'm not involved with the production of the film. I am a, I'm representing MAPS here, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And uh, MAPS is a nonprofit pharmaceutical organization that is funding the um, the the FDA clinical trials of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant trauma, for treatment-resistant PTSD. Um, just a little bit of my background, uh, I approached the world of um, psychedelics, I approached this research study of MDMA from a, a background in trauma and mental health. Um, so I, I didn't have much exposure to it at all. And um, uh, so, yeah, I'm one of the uh, sub-investigators on the, the clinical trial that's about to wrap up in Boulder right now. And Ryan? Okay, great. Yeah, my name is Ryan LeCompte. Uh, I'm a former United States Marine infantryman, uh, MOS 0311. Uh, I served in the infantry from 2007 to 2011. was honorably discharged in 2011. Uh, so I have sort of my own path of recovery from military service, and uh, my path has led me to the jungles of the Amazon. And I'm also out of this insp inspired path of uh, ayahuasca. I've now enrolled in a master's program at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, training to become a transpersonal uh, counseling therapist. And I'm also the founder uh, veterans for Entheogenic Therapy, or VET, and we uh, work to raise awareness around the use of entheogenic substances to help treat our PTSD. For veterans, yes. For veterans. For veterans by veterans. Mm. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for joining yeah. us, and thank you for sharing that deep work that you've done and the fruits of that. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. Some of our listeners may not be that familiar with PTSD and in particular PTSD uh, as experienced by veterans. So I'm wondering if one or maybe maybe all of you have some insights on this, if you can describe generally uh, what people are struggling with what the pharmaceutical cocktails and other treatments that are being um, 
advocated for assisting people and uh, maybe also a little bit about trauma and how it works in the body and in our psyche or any other dimension of it that you're comfortable describing. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd be happy to speak to that. And, and, you know, guys, feel free to jump in, especially with the veteran piece here, Ryan. Um, sure. So just a, a, a little bit more about my background, background magenta. So I neglected to say that I've been teaching graduate students and professional therapists to work specifically with trauma for the last uh, 10 years. And the modality that I work in is, is a somatic modality, which, which we're finding uh, is, you know, trauma affects all of us, right? Meaning that it affects our cognitive systems, it affects our emotional states, our mood, uh, and affects our bodies. You know, there's some really powerful, uh, big scale research out there um, that's telling us that early childhood trauma in particular really does um, have a long-term impact on adult mental health processes and adult disease processes. And so one of the directions that the field is, is t- taking at this point is looking much more at sort of the body as the place where uh, trauma is really housed. There's a lot of things that we can say about it, but pretty much the, the symptoms of of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, revolve around um, hyperarousal, you know, anxiety, panic symptoms, um, uh, uh, a, a lot of tension, uh, contraction, irritability, things like that, uh, fight or flight responses. Um, and on, on the one hand, and on the, the flip side, there's a lot of parasympathetic responses. And by that, I mean dissociative, depressive uh, things that, that are going on. Um, there's a lot of numbing that takes place with trauma. Um, and, and, and a lot of times these, these things can cycle or occur simultaneously. And, you know, one, one of the, um, just as a, a side note here, one of the common things that happens to people with trauma is that they're misdiagnosed with other uh, disorders like bipolar disorder, um, which I, I find very common in my practice that people that have come to me with a really significant history of trauma have also been diagnosed with with bipolar disorder because they have uh, highly activated, highly aroused states and and followed by um, depression. Um, So that's one way of approaching it. Ryan, you might say what it feels like, yeah. Yeah, if I might add from a a clinical point of view, uh, we see a lot of uh, addiction issues around trauma as well. Um, The the dual diagnosis approach, I think, is is useful in trying to understand, you know, not just the the traumatic event itself, but a lot of what uh, the the uh, the victims of trauma are trying to do as far as self regulation um, and self uh, healing, self medicating through addictive substances. And so, um, I guess from my own point of view, you know, I did uh, go through the VA system once I got out. Uh, and was prescribed a lot of what uh, Big Pharma considers, you know, symptom management medications. I was pres- I was prescribed Prozac for antidepression, um, which instrumentally could be could be useful for PTSD if used in short short uh, amounts of time. But the way the VA prescribes antidepressants is uh, a means to mask the symptoms over a longer period of time. Um, Another another area of medication was the benzodiazepines, so working with uh, trigger management, more along the lines of sedating uh, triggers and working with anxiety, and then for sleep as well, which is something else that uh, I think affects a lot of PTSD survivors, uh, and that was the barbiturates, which uh, for me was Ambien. Excuse me. And a lot of... Uh, these medications were prescribed to me um, at the same time and were, I was instructed to take them um, in no split amount of time, but at the same time. So it was, it was a dangerous time in my life. Um, And, you know, my, I guess my soul's point of view was really pointing me toward awakening and getting out of that. And then uh, eventually, I mean, I could tell my story about how I found ayahuasca and, and, and these entheogenic substances, but um, I think for a lot of us, you know, we really don't know what 
trauma is, we, we really only know the symptoms. And I think, uh, when we start bringing in pharmacology, um, we need to look at, you know, what enables the person to achieve their own freedom. And I think, uh, ayahuasca, MDMA and cannabis all promote that in us to be able to, you know, take responsibility for our own recovery and learn to integrate these experiences versus just sedating them. And I don't know why Peter Levine keeps coming up for me right now. Uh, his quote was, it is a detriment to our society that we live in a society that does not honor the internal landscape. And rightly so when our experiences call for us to integrate these experiences, we're at a loss. And I think that explains a lot of what PTSD is, that our culture is not set up to, uh, to allow us to integrate, you know, adverse events um, and traumatic events that, that really upsets the internal landscape. And we're not properly equipped to uh, integrate these experiences. And ayahuasca most definitely was, allowed me to do that in a very compassionate and patient way. Yeah, you know, and one other thing I, I would add to this conversation, guys, is that um, we, even though this film is specifically about veterans and, and the topic of PTSD comes up around um, military service, you know, I, my private practice is 100% um, trauma, and I don't have a single veteran in it, uh, which is to say that, you know, the, it's a common misconception that you have to lose an arm or have, you know, see horrible things on the battlefield to be traumatized. And what we're finding is that that's not the case, that trauma really is a relative experience and it's relative to our resources. It's relative to our abilities. So, you know, what is traumatizing for a Marine is going to be radically different than what's traumatizing for a six month, six month old infant. Um, and, and consequently, because we're, we are so dependent and powerless and, and, and just, you know, little uh, and, and forming at that time, uh, most of the trauma that, that people have um, does come from early childhood experiences. Um, and it's typically things that we don't remember because that memory system's not online yet. Absolutely. And, and our memories, it almost seems like our memories shut off to deal with that traumatic event yeah. as well. Yeah, that, that right. I, would, I would say dissociation is the hallmark of trauma. Um, it is, you know, that's where the true art and science of trauma therapy comes in. It's, you know, when, if, if I see somebody and they have a lot of um, anxiety symptoms, that's really good news because anxiety is relatively speaking a piece of cake to work. Um, and, you know, it takes, it's uncomfortable. It takes contact uh, with the anxiety, but, um, but true, you know, dissociation, the things that we, that our minds have blanked out before we can even get to it. That's the, you know, that, that's the, the difficult part, I think, of working with trauma. Absolutely. And just to add a sociocultural perspective, uh, whether it's early life trauma or PTSD amongst vets, mm -hmm. that the families and the loved ones and the communities that are associated with these people also get primary or secondary PTSD. For instance, one, the vet I'm visiting with right now, although... I'm not with him at the moment, said his his four children and his wife, he believes, have PTSD because of the severity of his symptoms. So it it propagates. Absolutely. It's a cultural. It's a it's an epidemiological, psychiatric epidemiological issue in our country, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, big time. Uh you know, Sean Kiernan was, was one of the ones that uh really found healing with cannabis. And one of the things that uh, he's a father as as well as I am, and one of the things that he said was that after he started using cannabis instrumentally and medically, he uh, his son approached him, his oldest son, and said, I got my daddy back. And that's yeah. huge in, in the world of, of being able to heal, you know, in, interpersonal uh, trauma like that, like secondary PTSD, because these families are struggling to make connections with their loved ones and they're willing and able to be there to support them. But there's always this level of distance between veterans and their families. And that's partly because, you know, veterans of service oftentimes don't like to uh, put our shit quote unquote on other people. And we, we like to uh, be the ones bleeding. 
and uh, cannabis, he said, really opened him up to that. And I just thought that was a profound statement from his son. Absolutely. Could you all share some more specific anecdotes of using psychedelic medicines to address this? I've heard people who are working with them in an intentional way specifically to address trauma because there's lots of unintentional ways working with all these medicines as well. Well, arguably not as often ayahuasca, but um, often people will, will work with them to resolve conflicts or find a space of peace within themselves. And from what I understand from talking to people, that goes so deep. That's just the levels of understanding and clarity in one's body that can be explored through these medicines is profound and beautiful. So I invite you all to share more details about what you've witnessed or experienced or researched in terms of that. It's a big open field. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it's wonderful, but when you ask that question, Magenta, my mind just goes to the many, many people that we see in the in the MDMA studies, you know, these are people that have been in therapy for 15 or 20 years trying to get at what's the symptoms and what's going on here. And there's just the, the anecdotes, the stories are just as varied as the number of people that are un, going into these processes. And they're all uniquely, beautifully human to, to that person. But in speaking in some generalities here, sort of a rule of thumb kind of thing, I think there is a difference between, say, MDMA and some of the other entheogenic psychedelics uh, in, insofar as I, I wouldn't even quite consider uh, MDMA as psychedelic in the true sense of the word in that, you know, it is more of an intactogen, right? So it's, it's as opposed to contacting the divine within, it's just, or, or having that type of experience, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's a touching within, it's a, it's a space of intimacy with oneself, and other people in the world that gets turned on that um, is, is profoundly healing, right? So, I mean, if you consider that trauma is a giant defensive response against the world, a giant contraction that we get locked into, uh, one of the things that MDMA does is really just sort of relax that contraction. So we're open to experiencing support. We're open to experiencing, you know, relationship and love in places that, that perhaps it's never been since since childhood um uh so you know one of the ways that uh mdma works is that it it, it powerfully engages the body right it's it's not a transcendent medication but a, a, a deepening into um sensory sensate experience um and when it does that you know we we feel things much more deeply the memories of the trauma are, are fairly vivid uh and at the same time, we experience a great deal of support, um, sort of, you know, just arising. A uh, and it's, it's a fairly reliable experience. <laughs> um, and what, what we tend to find is that, you know, when, uh, when people are given this drug, they, they, they move into it and their, their minds naturally turn towards the parts of their, their history, the parts of their psyche that are not integrated and sort of begin to work into those areas. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's very effective. You might give some of the statistics, Saj. Oh, sure. Sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, so this is, this is the very exciting thing that's happening here with MAPS and the FDA, which is that, you know, I, it, pretty much anybody who has experience with psychedelics knows sort of the, the capacity, the power that these, these medicines hold for us. But, you know, they've not been available to sort of the mass culture here. And that's one of the things that's happening through the scientific research of MDMA. And so, you know, what we're finding is that after three full dose sessions, this is from one particular study in South Carolina, that after three full dose MDMA sessions, that 83% of the people, 83% of the the treatment resistant trauma participants no longer qualified for the PTSD diagnosis, right? And uh, that's compared to, you know, 18 to 25% of people that engage in, in regular psychotherapy. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between 
sort of, you know, uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy and just psychotherapy. Um, and one of the one, one of the extraordinary things is that those numbers that that 83% that I'm describing, that's two months after all medication and treatment has ceased. Right. So it's not like Prozac or Zoloft where, you know, you're, you're, we're not talking about the world of symptom management here where you have to be on the medication to continue to receive the benefits of it. Um, Because, you know, for the most part, Zoloft as I, and I think this is also true of cannabis that when you stop taking it, the symptoms will return. But um, the processing that happens uh, uh, under under the effects of MDMA, you know, that, that seems to, we seem to be getting a durable remission. Um, so we can see that those effects, that 83%, that, you know, we've tracked those people out 3.8 years, and we're seeing that the numbers are still quite good. And I have to say, Saj, with the amount of suicide that's going on amongst veterans, I can't think of a better uh, intervention than MDMA for for getting at the root cause of these things. We we just don't have time. You know, a lot of the therapies now, they do work, and but it, a lot of it, like the same in the world of addiction, they say it takes about six years to kick a habit. And uh, I would say in the world of trauma, you know, the, the similar diagnosis is that it takes years and years to integrate these experiences and why take the risk and and having people go through self-medication and and uh you know a lot of the the uh returning back to uh therapy there's a there's a high rate of uh what's the word i'm looking for there's a high rate of dropping out dropping out of therapy you know Mm -hmm. and a whole stigma develops around that as well that people don't want to get help. They don't. They don't want to do the work. But MDMA seems to be that middle ground where you can meet yourself in that place and also integrate experiences. And how does that relate to your experience? How do I relate to my own experiences? I, I God, what I get so uh, I get goosebumps every time I think about it. <laughs> you might talk about ayahuasca too, because of your own healing. Yeah. Um, so MDMA, I'm I'm so grateful that MDMA is there. Just real quick before I jump into the transcendental, transpersonal dimensions, uh, I I really enjoy the. I, I, there's some level of satisfaction there that when I hear MDMA is is there, uh, because I think it it has a lot to do with. I hate to put this in the Christian context, but you know Christ said he was the Son of Man and the Son of God, and I feel like MDMA works more with the Son of Man. You know the, the size as you described you know, dealing with very human existential crisis. And uh, I think that both are necessary to realize that, you know, we are these transcendental beings, but we're also um, human. It's a very human experience. And me and Rick Devlin have been talking about MDMA with ayahuasca at different times to help integrate those experiences back into, but we won't get into that right now. I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that's the... <laughs> Yeah, getting them both together would be great. Uh, my own experience uh, with ayahuasca is, is my journey. I guess I'll, I'll try to share this briefly. It's it's kind of a a long process for me. Uh, so I got out of the Marine Corps in 2011, and I started seeking treatment at the VA. Um, and after being prescribed all these different medications, you know, and and watching my relationships crumble uh, with my wife and my kids. Um, it was actually my wife that shook me out of them and said, Hey, you know, this, are you in there? Are you, you still alive? You know, I just felt so sedated and, uh, I finally kicked them. You know, my soul had, had gotten in contact with myself again. And that was enough for me to, to sort of just stay present with what I was experiencing. Uh, but I knew that I was limited to how I was, how I was supposed to move forward with integrating these experiences I knew that I didn't want that. I identified the problem. And then shortly thereafter, while I was in school, uh, I met a friend and I did some underground psychedelic psychotherapy with him. uh, And that was the first time I'd ever touched a psychedelic at all. And that was DMT. And uh, DMT really opened me up and I got the message I needed. And uh, I just sort of, you know, started doing the research, started 
going back to the sixties and human rights and, and listening to, you know, talks and psychedelic research and really started getting into it. I started developing a passion for this stuff in school, you know, uh, while talking about it with professors and, uh, the field I was in psychology. So I had a lot of support there and, and looking at these medicines and, um, eventually I just started the group veterans for entheogenic therapy, um, because I knew that there probably would be other vets out there that didn't want to be sedated anymore. And I had met a lot of them in the lobbies at the VA and I just started adding everything up and, and staying very conservative about, you know, making a decision to go toward this field. And, uh, I just could no longer deny, you know, what was happening for me and how DMT had affected my life, you know, interpersonally and intrapersonally and existentially and developmentally and just, it hits so many different aspects of my being. You know, we talk about holistic therapy moving more toward, uh, you know, a whole person. And DMT absolutely did that for me. And since then, I've just sort of been acting from that place of inspiration and wanting to give back and service to other vets. And now I'm doing research uh, with MAPS as well on an observational study looking at ayahuasca assisted therapy for PTSD in combat veterans. So it's it's been an interesting trip. Are you able to share an anecdote about a specific experience? For example, something that was locked out of your memory or was a traumatic experience stored in your being and was there, I imagine there were many points, but could you share a specific example of something you saw or experienced on ayahuasca that allowed you to unwind that pattern and come back to peace again? Absolutely. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is we have this thing in the Marine Corps called uh, birthdays. And birthdays aren't a good thing um, in the Marine Corps. I lost a, a friend uh, in 2008. To suicide. Uh, he was a good friend of mine. His name was Sergeant Leon Altivar. And uh, Leon had just gotten back from a hump to Iraq, and he was also serving in the infantry, too. So, uh, you know, we're ground forces, we're direct contact. We uh, are constantly engaging with the community and, and in firefights, and there's constant arousal around, uh, around IEDs and not knowing when you're going to die. So there's being exposed to that for at least eight months at a time definitely um, plays a part in, in PTSD. But for Sergeant Leon, um, you know, one of the things we did in the Marine Corps was drink to medicate ourselves. It's just it's just the way we did it, you know. We didn't really talk about PTSD. We, we were told to, you know, man up and, and sort of just keep on plugging. And the day I found Sergeant Leon uh, – really shook things up for me and understanding what PTSD was and, and how deep that rabbit hole goes. And, um, under ayahuasca, uh, I was paid a visit by Sergeant Leon and Sergeant Leon had made it very clear. He was of Ecuadorian blood and, uh, it was him who had led me to South America and, you know, that experience of being able to let Sergeant Leon go and recognize that this in part was my own grieving process, but it was also this spiritual realm that I was experiencing. Um, it, it really helped me just become content with where I was in, in that moment. And then shortly after that, uh, for those listeners who have experienced ayahuasca will understand me when I say that Mother Ayahuasca held me in a space that was nurturing and loving and uh it brought me back to i guess what stan groff talks about a lot in in uh lsd therapy was this idea of uh being back in the womb and the birth trauma and how that microcosm expanded outward toward my own experience and um seeing how the world really works um it just and it, it didn't just show me that right it showed me in a very loving and compassionate way which I think a lot of vets need at this point is this uh, understanding that, that uh, yes, these things have happened, but there is a, a softer, gentler way 
and ayahuasca was my way. It was my gentler way. Thank you for sharing that so articulately. Janine, I'm wondering how in the documentary that you plan to approach uh, people sharing their stories, I'm wondering also if you are filming any kind of setting so that people see um, kind of what the container looks like when they might work with an entheogen yes. or, or MDMA. Yes. Um, our plan, we're just beginning filming actually, although we've made the contacts that we have vetted, no pun intended, that we're going to film. Our intention is to (laughs) film before, during, and after. So to find veterans who are suffering from PTSD, who have not experienced these entheogens, to film them in their lives, with their families, in their day-to-day life. So we also get to feel what PTSD looks and feels like. Then to film them, we have secured rights through Ryan. Ryan is our gateway for finding veterans, and he will be taking them to SoulQuest in Florida to do ceremony. And we have permission to film during the ceremony to film the integrative talks afterwards, and then to follow vets six to eight months afterwards to see how it does affect, again, their daily life. So that the viewer can see for him or herself what transformation, potential transformation looks like. With MDMA, it's a little trickier because the the rigors of the FDA clinical trials uh, may prevent us from from actually filming before because it might affect the clinical results, but we may do the backstory and hear the stories recreated. The veterans are filmed during their sessions. We won't necessarily be there, but there are cameras uh, that we will be able to act, access their footage from their actual sessions, and then again afterwards to follow them. With cannabis, It's a different process because as both Saj and Ryan referred to, cannabis is more of a symptom manager. It isn't transpersonally nor transcendentally transformative. That was three transes right there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But it is tremendously helpful for these veterans to be able to replace sometimes 10 to 15 pharmaceuticals with uh, various strains of marijuana, cannabis, to A, get sleep. Many many veterans we've talked to, had, before they tried cannabis, weren't able to sleep for three years or sleep without nightmares. So to be able to good, get a good night's sleep is healing. To be able to handle anxiety to be able to be out in crowds without being hypervigilant and constantly scanning the environment. When aggression starts to emerge, to be able to um, take a few puffs and calm themselves down. So truly it has massive implications. The research for this is with Dr. Sue Sisley, who's also affiliated with MAPS. Uh, She is struggling. I mean, she's gotten approval from FDA and will soon be starting her clinical trials to find out specifically with vets what does and doesn't work. She has approval for five different strains. So um, we will also follow veterans in their daily life. I am here today. We're beginning filming one of those veterans who will be going across country with Weeds for Warriors be going across country with many other vets to educate other vets along the way. So we hope to get that journey as well, ending up on the VA steps on Veterans Day, throwing down their pill pill bottles and making the statement of they don't want to have to go through this cocktail approach to treating their symptoms and that they have the right to use their own healing methods. It's very controversial now in terms of the federal laws versus the state laws, et cetera. So 
some consistency is really important. Yeah. I, I imagine the expense of the pharmaceutical treatments, the doctor visits, the insurance, all of that is tremendous to the vets themselves, to the state, to the government, the whole situation. And I've never heard much in the debate. Um, do any of you know, does it get talked about that people in some states can grow their own medicine or strains of cannabis or, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the cost of the uh, other methods for treating the various symptoms of PTSD? That's a great point. I've brought that up many times. To, I've written, you know, my local congressman and the uh, Pentagon, you know, HHS Secretary Sebelius, many times on that issue that this is also an economical decision you know, in the state of that we're in, it would be who of them to consider. Yeah, they've actually come up with. Um, uh, there's some statistics on this that at least not for the for the 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 disability benefits alone, uh, for you know, as full disability benefits for lifetime for PTSD can get to uh, 1.5 million dollars per vet. So you know, it can it can be very expensive in in, in other ways. And arguably that, you know, the Pentagon, uh, the U.S. government will be one of the main beneficiaries of, uh, of legalizing, you know, some of these med- medicines. Um, although uh, to, to date, there's, there's not been support from, um, you know, the federal government for any of this research. This has all been um, sort of a, a grassroots level nonprofit pharmaceutical that, that we're talking about here. Of veterans that are treated for PTSD, uh, either through conventional methods or through the medicines that we're talking about, how many of them return to the branch of military service that they were in? I wouldn't say a lot of them. Um, we had this discussion to, uh, with Psychedelic Salon a couple of days ago. Uh, and the way I, the way I view it is that, you know, a lot of the people that do seek treatment, um, existentially are suffering from a very, very uh, earlier childhood experience that uh, was perturbed by their, their combat experience. And um, for the ones that, that are on that path, have, you know, psychedelics in general, they perturb this, this uh, understanding that us and them are no longer, there's no longer a fine line between us or them, that that becomes uh a path of, of healing and serving others. And I think for the ones that are, that did join to um, hurt others and, and, and destroy others in other countries, uh, I don't think they would be seeking this form of healing. I think those would be the ones that take the barbiturates and take the antidepressants and take the, the colonopins and, and sort of the symptom management uh, medications so that they can go back out and continue, um, in the path of suffering. So I don't know if that answers your question, but the veterans that I've seen are at such a, a level that they're tired of being sedated and they, they want to get better and they want to be um, in service to others, but in, in on the opposite end of the spectrum, which would be healing and helping others. Is there much discussion in the veteran community, for example, the one that you are helping steward, of the wider cultural and economic, political, you know, all the, the aspects of, of war and why states go to war with each other. Is there, I imagine there's a lot of discussion, you know, about people's personal experiences and feelings and so forth. And I'm wondering how deep the discussion goes about those bigger cultural and collective uh, motivations and actions. Absolutely. I think, um, well, there's two sides to what vets are, are trying to do. Um, and I've chosen uh, my side of healing, um, sort of making sense of what's of what's happening and, and the chaos of, of what we've been a part of. And, and the other side is activism. And I think uh, like Iraq veterans against the wars is a prime example of, of their mode of healing being that they are, are calling out the ethical and moral uh, principles behind why it is that we did go to war, and for a lot of vets who who joined for service to others, altruistic reasons, which has a lot to do with the healing process as well. Um, 
these vets are more concerned with with serving each other, taking care of the community, signing up for uh, core values and principles that that we hold dear to our hearts. And that's sort of the path that I've I've taken as as far as the the war itself and and uh, and what we're doing over there. I've sort of put that aside because I know that there's ambiguous there's ambiguity around what we're doing and i also take into take into account that there are real factions over in the middle east that that are bent on completely and utterly annihilating anyone who is not uh a muslim a practicing muslim there are extremist groups just like in any culture uh i think we saw it a lot in christianity and we saw it a lot in uh in uh the irish red army there's there's groups that are just bent solely on brainwashing and and uh destroying others and so i am mixed on that i think uh on one side we have a real threat to people's sovereignty and and what they deserve and on the other i know that the united states has uh entered into a war for their own purposes as well oil or contra or whatever and so i've because of that i've decided to stay out of that and just focus on healing so you bring up a really good point though yeah thank you for sharing your insight on the on the ground and from within the community of of what you're witnessing and in terms of that that aspect of the conversation and the different dimensions of it and different paths that people go in their healing process and, and, and reconnecting with themselves and with, with culture and society. Um, um, I want to wrap up fairly soon here, but I wanted to ask each of you about the family, cultural and societal aspects of healing from trauma. When in the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the impact that has the secondary PTSD and so forth. And I'm wondering what you all have witnessed in terms of the, uh, the wider picture of healing as you you know, are, are interfacing with people who are uncovering themselves from um, the detritus of, of war and trauma of other kinds. How is it affecting their their families and their cities and the various cultures or communities that may they may participate in? Well, uh, does anybody else want to take this? I feel like I've been kind of... <laughs> no, go for it, and we'll add our comments. Okay. Um, so I guess... You know, there's this new, I, there's a friend of mine, her name is Libby. She came with us to Peru last year uh, to drink ayahuasca. She's an Air Force vet, and she's been struggling with treatment-resistant PTSD for over 30 years. And um, she's a grandmother as well, and she had described uh, how this affected her family, and she said one of the things ayahuasca did for her was she was no longer a provider and a protector of her family, but she also was able to embrace her family, which is something that was foreign to her. I, I made sure I made a mental note of that when she had described how that shift happened within her family. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's profound. And she also made the suggestion that there is this secondary PTSD and that families are not, um, being looked at as being the recipients of, of PTSD and, so now she's fighting to for uh for her family and for other families who who are affected by PTSD and wanting to add the secondary PTSD to the DSM. You know Ryan, I I definitely want to piggyback on that when in terms of what we're seeing in the in the study here um which by the way let let me add just very briefly that you know we're we're talking about PTSD but you know, there's other populations that are would be very affected by and so helped by these medicines. Like for for example, there's a uh, Max is con- conducting a study at UCLA for um, uh, MDMA for uh, anxiety in autistic adults, and the you know the study's ongoing, so I can't say anything about the results, but they're very promising. Um, it's you know it, it looks like it can be something that's used with with other groups. Um, but back to your point in terms of the family, uh, what we're seeing in the study is that the shift that takes place with people is is so uh, 
profound and rapid that, you know, we're not used to it. Um, we're certainly, you know, as a mental health, as a psychotherapist, this is not something that I'm used to seeing. Um, and, you know, and even though we're using really sort of cutting edge somatic techniques, which are very powerful, still healing from, from trauma is a long, painful process. And in, in the best case scenario, in the worst case scenario, it's just, you know, people people just go to therapy and don't receive much benefit from it. Um, but, but, you know, this is not something that we're used to seeing. And, you know, what we, what we, what, what's happening in the study is that, you know, people, a family will drop off their loved ones in the morning and they'll go through this process throughout the day, a very deep, intense process. Um, and then, you know, they come back in the evening <laughs> to pick their, their loved one up and, you know, they, they, the, the person's kind of different and um right. and so what so what we're finding is that the the family of uh the family system needs some work needs some therapy as well to prepare itself for the changes that are going to happen with this individual yeah it's something that i like that janine is doing is she's going to be following up with family members throughout my study and i'm not sure if you're uh you're doing that with MDMA or, or I know you're doing it with cannabis. We but. hope to. Yeah, we hope to do it with all. It's such an important part of the story. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, we don't exist. We don't exist any other way other than interpersonally. I don't know who I am without you, you know. Exactly. And just to add a bigger frame on it as an observer, that uh, from the stories I'm hearing and Luke is hearing, very, I would say, 87% of the time that peop, the, the vets we're encountering go from this deep imprisoned life called PTSD to healing and out the other side have a passion for serving and bringing this right. to others. I mentioned this before that there is a strong ethic of no one left behind in the military that you go back for your buddies, you go back to help those who are in need. And that ethic is pervasive here, not only to help other veterans, but to help family members. I mean, the level of service is tremendous. I'm, I'm visiting with a group today of veterans who provide cannabis for other veterans. And the passion with which they speak, and the fervor that they have for helping others. So it, it's families, it's it's husbands and wives, and then it extends to the community. And we even have Tony Macy, who went through MDMA therapy and is now taking groups of veterans to Cambodia to help with social service. So it seems to come in a package that this desire to serve others comes with one's deep healing. You know, Janine, as you were talking, I was just, I was just thinking how is it's perhaps the most fantastic thing that a, that a side effect of a what is soon to be a pharmaceutical uh, is compassion as opposed to pain yes. and and empathy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like oh, d deeper empathy. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> warning, warning. You may become more compassionate and feel quite yeah. a bit about your Yeah, that's man. one of the side effects. <laughs> You put that on the bottle when it becomes a medicine. Right. <laughs> and that, that brings us to the last topic when talking about these. These substances are currently illegal, which is astonishing, partly because some of them you can grow in your backyard or grow in a greenhouse or something um, and have right. been for people across the planet for like 5,000 or more years. <laughs> I'm grateful to you for making this film and for each of you for doing the work that you're doing for the, the benefit that it's having for everyone that you're interfacing with and also for the advocacy that that brings to the greater picture of legalization. I'm curious if you can share about what you're seeing with the emerging identity of these substances as not drugs but as, as medicines and sacraments. I can speak to some level of clash that we're experiencing with this. So MDMA obviously doesn't have the same kind of um, background uh, in terms of being a sacrament that, uh, that ayahuasca has. 
But I can tell you, when I'm talking to groups of psychotherapists about this, there's a lot of blank looks. There's a lot of concern that people have because our our lens for for looking at, you know, how healing works in our culture is um, either there's, a, you know, pharmaceuticals, um, which on the whole, uh, you know, have, to, to a large extent, have numbing effects on, on people's nervous systems and their experience of being alive, which, you know, can be valuable in the short run as a crutch, but, you know, for, for long-term use, I think it can be problematic. Um, but so, you know, people can say, all right, uh, is MDMA a pharmaceutical when the process is not pharmaceutical in nature, when, you know, it's a very contactful, contactful therapeutic process, people typically don't have a way of relating to that. Um, you know, the, they have a lot of concern around addiction or, or it's just so plain alien that, you know, therapists anyway, don't know what to do with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think, I'll just go ahead. I'll Janine. just speak up with again the overview of Maps, whose sole purpose or primary purpose is to push these substances through all of the very rigorous FDA trials and scientific rigor that it takes to prove them, so that they can be number one rescheduled from Schedule One to Schedule Three, so they can be used in responsible settings and that the stigma is removed. But it's a long process, and Rick Doblin has been doing it, along with the Hefter Foundation and others, to move this ahead. So it's not an easy process, uh, but it is underway. And I don't know about all of you, but I think the tide is rising. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the tide is rising. And just to speak to to Janine's point about how long this process takes, you know, one of the things that, that we have an opportunity to do here is to join religion and science, and psychedelics seems to be the bridge, uh, if we can do it in a way that, that uh, stays true to the roots of science by using rigor and, and using psychometrics and doing it the right way. And I, I think it's important to, to hold on to some of the, the Western values that we have in, in science and, and be able to move forward with spirituality and um, the way we do it is through behavioral modification. I, I personally, part of my study is, is measuring uh, behavioral changes as well as severity in PTSD, um, which I'm placing, this is the faith piece for me, is I'm putting all my, my, my chips on the side of ayahuasca that if they take this medicine and they do the integrative work over the course of the year for my follow-ups, that we will see a reduction in caps, but we'll also see a change in, in their understanding of mystical experience. And I think there's a, there's a heavy correlation there. And we can do it now for the first time in, in ever. I think really the 50s did a lot, but I think the, the doors are open to measuring not only behavioral changes and, and taking more of a Skinner classical conditioning model, but also opening the doors for how spirituality fits into that, that model. I think the psychedelic is the key to that. Yeah, a big task. <laughs> oh, yeah, but we can do it. <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, guys, the the thing is that the, the cat is out of the bag at this point, right? We have too much research. We, um, the you know, the, the data is coming back, and it's significantly different than, than pretty much anything that we've encountered before. So, I mean, you know, we are on, we're taking something that has not been a part of the world of science and putting it into the world of science. And, and, you know, surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, there's agreement, right? There's, we're we're seeing the same, same things, but through psychometric testing now. Right. And that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I've always found with my, I have a lot of science, and engineer friends, and I found that their pathways to going so deeply into their field of study and looking at the nature of matter and life and, uh, you know, how you put things together and so forth, they, I, I find that they end up at a similar point of, I'm not sure they would describe it this way, but uh, of mysticism or reverence or awe or mm-hmm. reality in life and that it's, 
works the way that it does and that we exist and so forth. Um, and so I often, I, I don't think that, it, there's a lot of cultural division and legal division between religion and science, but I think that there's a, um, a, a depth of engagement with, with reality and with nature and with ourselves that, uh, you know, there's so many pathways toward accessing that. And I'm really grateful that more of the doors are starting to open across multiple mm -hmm. pathways so that insofar as the, the cause of wars are often have to do with religion or science or belief systems and so forth, there's a, you know, a really big cultural bucket that we're talking about here that is the the opening up of collective cognizance behind those doors of all those walls that we um, shut off the other uh, whether that's race or an economic status or living in a different country or religion and so forth and there's also an intergenerational aspect to the transmission of trauma I don't know if you all have researched that there's a conference at Stanford oh, yeah. Yeah, that I yeah. like, but people looking at generational trauma. So, for example, from uh, what happened in World War II, or, or other forms of genocide. I mean, which is still happening across the entire planet. How these entire populations of people are, you know, this trauma gets passed down intergenerationally uh, through through culture, potentially through our uh, genes. And the way we treat each other and all of that stuff and if we're if we are going to come to balance and heal, heal ourselves and heal as a society as a, as a and as a global community with the extent to which we're affecting the the planetary balance and homeostasis of life here you know all the tools that we have in our toolbox it's the time to bring them out and bring our gifts to the table for each other beautifully oh, beautiful beautifully oh my thank God. you magenta yeah might I add one last uh, remark here, Magenta, around uh, in terms of support? When I started working uh, on this research project uh, in, in Boulder, Colorado, I didn't understand the concept of it. You know, the more that I got into it, I realized that, wait a minute, MDMA and these other medicines that we're talking about are not financial blockbusters, which is to say that, you know, people don't use that much of, of it and they don't use it persistently and uh, for years or anything like that. And so, you know, it's not like Zoloft. It's not like some of these things that, you know, are financial blockbuster drugs. And so without a company, without an organization like MAPS, you know, these things that are just, you know, coming out for the public benefit wouldn't, wouldn't be developed. It's not in a, you know, there's not a business case to do it necessarily. Um, so I, I would suggest, you know, we are we are very close to uh, we're about to wrap up phase two trials in December. And, you know, we're going to be launching into phase three trials, which is the last big step. And, uh, you know, we're looking at legalization in 2021. So this is not a someday or, you know, down way down the road kind of thing. We're, we're looking at legalization um, uh, for medical purposes. And, uh, you know, there, there's, we're looking at a not-so-distant future where, you know, people with uh, these, these very debilitating conditions can go to their local psychedelic treatment center in their town and not have to fly to South America <laughs> to, to receive treatment. <laughs> um, so this is just going to be accessible to so many more people. So if, if that's a vision that um, your listeners can support, I would suggest going to maps.org and and looking at how you can support that organization, and least of which through you know donation is is really they just need grassroots funding to to get through the trials. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I want to honor Maps for their efforts in this because uh, you know Rick, when he set off on his journey, he definitely did not have his own interest in mind, and I appreciate him for uh, stepping up and and dedicating his life to, to real healing. And in the practice that I'm in therapy, you know, my model is I want my patients to get well. I want my clients to, to not return. I want them to be able to stand <laughs> on their own. And right. I have no interest in, in monetary gain. And I hope that there's others out there and we can come together around these medicines. And uh, I think it'll attract, you know, it'll bring the ones out of the woodworks that are doing the underground work, but it'll also challenge a lot of people that are in the, in the industry now 
who uh, may not understand these medicines or or uh, are fundamentally opposed to it before. I hope it opens their minds and their hearts to this. Ryan, can you share right. briefly the name you know, again uh, of your organization and how people can support it or get involved? Absolutely. Uh, if they want to, they can go to www.vetentheogenic.org. That's vetentheogenic.org. Um, we also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vetentheogenic. Um, and like Saj is saying, uh, you know, we're not going to be having to travel as veterans to South America any longer. We're going to be doing our, our observational study through the SoulQuest Native American Church, which is protected under the Religious Freedoms Act. Um, so it's it's another pairing of science and, and religion there, and we've gotten the okay from the Native American Church to do our study um, through their church with ayahuasca. So that's amazing. I'm, yeah, I'm very okay. relieved to see that happen. I didn't, I wasn't comfortable sending more vets, at least not me, without me going like we did last year to South America. So now I feel a little safer for our vets ethically that they would be uh, here in the United States. Beautiful. Thank you. We are doing this documentary to aid all of the causes that we're talking about, and we need money to do it. So we, if anybody is interested to go to Indiegogo and look up from shock to awe and donate small amounts or large amounts, we'll take it all. <laughs> it all helps. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a great interview. Thank you for uh. your thoughtfulness. Yeah. yeah, likewise. It's wonderful to meet you all. Well met. And thank you to each of you for sharing your wisdom and your experience. And I hope to stay in touch. Thank you. Awesome. All. Yay. Yay. Great. <laughs> okay, <bro>. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. All right, take care, Yay. guys. Love and light Thanks. to everybody. Thank you.